Hello, I'm Scott Winnale, and this is TW Now. Welcome back to our regular viewers, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. We hear much about China in the news. Commentators analyze China's economy, its actions related to human rights, and they predict China's intentions. China is growing its space program, its military, and its oversight of leadership of nations around the globe. Standards of living has increased greatly in China over the last 30 years, and their economy, although slowing some, is still bustling. Many think it was Napoleon who once observed that China is a sleeping lion. Let her sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world. This is a reference that Chinese President Xi Jinping also alluded to on a trip to France a few years back. And hopefully we've got an article that shows this. Ironically, this imagery is the same that the British Empire once held dear, the lion with its paw on top of the globe. Nations of the West would say China is also growing its global ambitions and intentions. But how accurate is this information that we're presented with regarding China? Does China take steps and actions that it does for particular reasons? Why do they do that? What does China's future hold? What does the Bible have to say or indicate about China in the end times? Today's interview should provide you with some insights into perspectives you may not have considered about China before. And so we invite you to join us as we go forward. I'd like to introduce today our guest, a returning guest here with TW Now, Mr. Stuart Vahovich. He's actually in the studio today. Normally he joins us by Skype, but he's in the studio with us and he's visiting from Alberta, Canada. Mr. Vahovich has spent the past 22 years of his professional career studying China, working with the Chinese government and their leaders, and traveling to China. So he brings a special vantage point that I think you'll find helpful and interesting today. If you have questions as we carry out our discussion, we encourage you, as usual, please feel free to message us and we'll do our best to address some of your questions. Also, please remember to like, subscribe, or share today's program. Mr. Wojtovich, again, thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. And as we jump in, let me just ask you, perhaps you can share just a little bit more of the background that you have working with China and coming to understand China in really what's a more personal way, I think. Well, in uh, 2004, then President Hu Jintao uh, realized that um, China was coming on the world scene, uh, coming out really of a seclusion uh, that they had been in for a long time and they wanted to be understood and they realized that their culture and their perspectives were not understood in the world mm -hmm. and so what they did is they created a series of institu uh, an institute called the Confucius Institute um, the world sort of missed what they were doing they modeled it actually after uh, what the Germans had done with the Goethe Institute the Spanish with Institute of Cervantes um, the British with the British Council, the French with Alliance Francaise, etc. Uh, agencies which help in those respective cultures to spread their language and culture. Um, by using the name Confucius, of course, they thought that they would send a message that we're no longer mm -hmm. followers of Mao Zedong, because Mao was an enemy of Confucius. Uh, but the world, I think, largely missed the significance. But they um, did develop these institutes in um, universities and sometimes large school systems around the world. And because of my association uh, with the school systems, um, I was asked to direct a Confucius Institute in Edmonton, 
which became one of the largest in the world, and uh, we dealt with areas of economic, cultural, and educational issues and exchange. And so uh, it enabled me to work in China on 26 different occasions, uh, which gave me an opportunity to learn much more about this country than I had previously understood um, in my former life. Okay. Well, you mentioned that the Confucius Institutes were set up sort of as an outreach program in a sense, uh, an opportunity to give other nations and peoples more insight into China, to maybe show a different side of China than they were aware of. I guess my question is, why? What, what is maybe some of the history mm -hmm. that China was trying to overcome or help the world see in a different light, or maybe a history that helped motivate them? Right. Well, I think um, Chinese historical development is largely unknown in the West. And uh, there were a lot of factors that shaped the Western view of China. When the West first came into sustained contact with China it was in the mid-1700s. There had been earlier contact, but sustained contact was about the mid-1700s. And uh, the China had been ruled since 200 BC by a series of emperors, a series of different dynastic families. And um, in 1640, the Ming Dynasty, the last of the great dynasties, uh, collapsed and uh, a dynasty from northern China, uh, actually not Chinese, but Manch Manchurians, uh, called the Manchu or the Qing dynasty, took power in 1640. By the mid-1700s, they had allowed China, due to corruption, to uh, devolve into warring factions, a lot of warlords, civil war, uh, famine, uh, and all the other things that go with uh, dysfunction and the emperors had largely lost control of the country. Uh, by 1800, uh, this had really uh, hurt them, but prior to 1800, the GDP of China from 200 BC to 1800 had been larger than any other political system in the world. They had the largest GDP up until that time. It's a tremendous amount of time. It's a huge amount of time, and there was a, a societal collapse nearly. Um, in 1840, they suffered something the West does not know about, the Taiping Revolt, which was uh, the largest civil war ever fought that we have record of in human history. Over 20 million people died. The country was plunged into uh, terrible circumstances. And the emperor then had to turn to the West to sustain help to put down this revolt. Mm -hmm. The West then took concessions from a weak China along the coastline and imposed rather humiliating terms. Uh, this was followed by a revolt against the emperor in 1911, the overthrow of the Qing dynasty, the establishment of the Republic of China. 1930s come along, the Japanese invade and uh, horrid uh, situations develop. Uh, this is followed by the civil war in China between the Kuomintang and the uh, Communist Party, uh, with the Communists winning largely because Mao was seen as the one who was fighting the Japanese, not the Kuomintang, and the people, mm -hmm. even though they didn't like Mao's policies, they went over to him because he was the defender in their minds. The Kuomintang retreated to Taiwan, and uh, China had had this long history. This was followed by 1962 and the Great Leap Forward, the collectivization, which millions starved to death as a result. 
Uh, and then it made matters only worse when Mao's third wife convinced him that he should have a cultural revolution in 1966 uh, and just a nightmare fell upon the country and education collapsed. And they didn't come out of it until after the death of Mao Zedong. And uh, finally they had a strong leader in Deng Xiaoping mm -hmm. who brought the country, although it was devastated by 200 years, like a 200 year nightmare. Mm -hmm. But the West formed an impression of China during that period uh, they didn't see the previous culture, the previous wealth, the capacity, the inventiveness. And it, uh, all of a sudden they were coming out of this very deep despair. And uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1982 repudiated Marxism, uh, turned China on a different path. Um, they, had to main they felt they had to maintain control, so the Communist Party maintained more or less governmental control. But by the time of Hu Jintao, in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, China embraced a more capitalist economy, but under a central control. And they felt the world didn't understand them. They wanted them to respect China for their history, and they wanted them to be able to learn Chinese language, for example. And so they started these institutes to try to give a different perspective than what was being portrayed in a lot of Western media. Mm. And that was the rationale for the institutes. Okay. Let me ask you a question, another history-related question, as we sort of lay the foundation here. And by the way, I'm starting to see some questions come in on YouTube. This is really good. We're looking forward to getting to those questions. We'll get to them in just a few minutes because uh, we really need to understand, I think, before we jump into some of the geopolitics, a little bit more of what motivates China. Uh, you've mentioned before, as we've talked, about the century of humiliation. Can you talk about that for just a minute? Well, yes, it was, uh, Western culture had a certain opinion of itself uh, from European uh, perspective, and even the Americans had some involvement in, that, uh, in, in some of the concessions later on. Um, and they saw, like I say, an impoverished people. They didn't necessarily always treat them in a way that respected their previous culture. And they would impose regulations and rules. For example, a foreigner coming to China, if he committed a crime, had to be tried under the European law or the law of the jurisdiction. A Chinese who committed a crime in one of the concessions was tried under European law. Uh, there was uh, not a sense of respect for what the nation had been or what it could be. And uh, they felt humiliated. There were signs, for example, uh, in Shanghai on the parks, uh, dogs and Chinese not allowed. And you can still see those signs in museums. Now, add that all up, and there was a sense of being humiliated. Mm. And this, I think, laid the foundation today, China realizing it has come out of that period has great capacity, mm -hmm. and they want to be understood, and they want to um, put that behind them, uh, but they don't want to forget it totally because they're not going back there. And this is something that foreign governments, when they're negotiating with China, must keep in mind. Uh, if you try to humiliate them or give them the difficult terms, mm -hmm. they're not going back to that century of humiliation, and mm -hmm. this is a a guiding factor mm -hmm. that Western governments need to understand when they're interacting with China. Okay. 
One of the things I've noticed in my readings of China's history, and I'm certainly not an expert at all, but over the years, you know, visiting museums and reading certain books and learning about some of the history, it looks like China has, over the last um, thousand years, it's been almost a thousand years, hasn't it, uh, since uh, the, the clans got together and they began with the first dynasty? The first dynasty was uh, Emperor Qin in uh, 200 uh, BC. Okay, so 2000. But the years. history goes back much further. Um, the periods before that um, were smaller states, um, but with a very unified culture. The writing system, the um, uh, philosoph the philosophic system, uh, Confucianism or Taoism, mm -hmm. had been around since about 500 BC. Prior to that, there was still that cultural integrity. Mm. And uh, they've maintained that cultural integrity, as no other people have, for about the last 3,000 years. It looks a bit like the Chinese over the centuries and millennia have had a bit of a, a revolving philosophy on their interaction with the world. Yes. So for a time, they sort of open their doors and reach out, and then they turn inward. Right. They do. There, there is an open and shutting of uh, uh, the world to China. Uh, the Ming Dynasty, for example, for a while opened itself very widely to the world and wanted to learn from the world. And then some of the uh, political leadership, the Mandarins, etc., felt that this was endangering Chinese culture, mm. uh, spending too much money, and so they shut it down. And uh, today you're seeing a little bit of a contraction. Hu Jintao, when he was president, was very open to the world, very open. Uh, President Xi Jinping um, is resisting that. He is concerned. Uh, when you read uh, papers like the China People's Daily and Xinhua and other, other documentations that represent uh, political thought in China, mm -hmm. he is very concerned about uh, things like pornography. He believes that mm -hmm. shouldn't be in China. And so basically, he has just shut that down off the internet. Uh, the West cries, you know, censorship. Mm. He doesn't care. He doesn't want it. It's not going to be there. Um, the, there's a lot of issues like that that they are worried about wrong influence on their people. Mm -hmm. And so they will have a tendency sometimes to um, shutter themselves. Today, however, they do want to keep an economic door open. Mm -hmm. That's very important to their development and their economic plan. This sort of leads to the next question. Uh, is, I'm thinking about what motivates the Chinese to do what they do. Some of it, as you just described, might be a little bit of a protecting themselves reaction if, if they feel uh, threatened and like they're being pushed back into that um, century of humiliation. They don't want to be put in that box anymore, mm -hmm. understandably. What are some of the other motivations for China in their, their leap forward that we're seeing on the world scene? I think one of the things that concerns the Chinese government, and this has concerned many Chinese governments historically, is that every Chinese dynasty, every major Chinese dynasty, was eventually overthrown by a peasant revolt. And uh, there is a concern. If you want to know what's forefront in the mind of the Chinese president or the or the uh, Politburo at any one time. Mm -hmm. It is, are we able to create a hope in the minds of those 
five or six hundred million people who have not yet been brought into the economic recovery of China mm. because there's a risk there. And so their, uh, the, the biggest sense of urgency they have is how to roll prosperity or the hope of prosperity out to more of their people. They have 1.4 billion people. They've raised four or five hundred million people into the middle class or above in the last 20 years, which has never been done in history before in that scale. But they still have four or five hundred million there. That's a scary peasant revolt thought. It, it <laughs> is, and it is a big concern for them. And that is their number one issue. Uh, foreign affairs are decidedly secondary to that number one issue. And that issue will be their primary decision maker when it comes to making foreign decisions on economy, on matters military, on uh, all manner of things. Uh, this is a, a driving force um, for the Chinese uh, people. It drives their education programs, mm -hmm. it drives their economic decisions. Which then begins to get to my next question, which is what fuels Chinese ambitions? Um, are there other fears that motivate their actions? I don't know if there is too many fears. Uh, the desire to make money uh, is uh, very much so. It's a very capitalist society. You cannot go to China and sit in some of their uh, gleaming shopping malls, even in some of the inland cities now. Uh, the cities far from the coastline are developing. Uh, you see a lot of shops, a lot of private industry. 60% uh, of all industry in China is private owned. 80% um, of all employment is by private entrepreneurs. Um, not, not the state. Then. Not the state. 40% of industry is run by the state currently. Okay. But uh, that's about only 20, 25% of employment. Mm -hmm. uh, they have more private employment than they have state employment. Uh, they have more private, a, a greater percentage of their economy is private than the nation of France, for example. Mm -hmm. So this is why referring to them as communist is uh, not quite accurate. I mean, uh, that's the name of the party that runs the place. <laughs> and that's sort of a legacy from Mao Zedong. But their philosophy is distinctly not communist. I mean, the Marxist-Leninist philosophy is long gone. Uh, if I were to give them a if I were to label them philosophically as what style of government they're following, mm -hmm. I would call it a neo-Confucius state, uh, not a communist state. Okay. And uh, that way capitalism can coexist with this central control uh, that they uh, have been so successful with at, at this point. It's interesting, this concept of capitalism, it, it appears, I mean, even from the outside in the West would would, would argue that, yeah, there's capitalism going on there. It seems like capitalism is really an engine that's motivating them to move forward. But it doesn't look like the same form of capitalism that we see, or maybe, the, maybe not the same philosophy of capitalism that we see in other parts of the world. Well, there's still a central, a central control of economy to a certain point. For example, the stock exchange exists and is vibrant in a number of centers, uh, whether it's Hangzhou or Shanghai or you know, other places. Um, but the state does have the right mm. to come in and stop trading at any moment if they see something happening they don't want to have. Mm. That's the central control side. 
but uh, agriculture, for example, farmers have their own land uh, that they lease from the government. Uh, it's theirs. No one can interfere with them. Uh, there's no taxation on products that you produce on the farm. And uh, so there's lots of incentive. And that's capitalism. Mm. Uh, and uh, when they did that, they rose, they, they increased food production 1,800%. That's why they can feed 1.4 billion people three times a day and be one of the largest food exporters in the world. Mm. The result of a capitalistic philosophy. Mm. It works. Belt and Road. <clears throat> I just I had a thought as you were talking earlier about how historically China's had the greatest GDP in the world, uh, probably for the longest continuous period of time, yes. with, without argument. What's interesting, if I remember my history correctly, is that a significant portion of that time there was actually the Silk Road in, in function for 1,200 years or whatever it was. And I, it makes me wonder, is, is that some of the motivation? Any idea if that's some of the motivation for going back to the Silk Road, New Silk Road, Belt and Road concept? They certainly remember the prosperity that, was, that came into China as a result of foreign trade. Uh, they've had foreign trade for a long time. Uh, Archaeology has now shown that from around 550 BC, the influence of the Persian Empire was entered in as far as Wuhan in central China. Uh, you had um, Jews taking part who were captives in the Persian Empire, or at least citizens of the Persian Empire later, acting as bankers uh, all the way to the coast, the Pacific coast. And uh, that's one of the reasons you see a trade. You even find quotes from the book of Proverbs in the writings of Confucius, which the Chinese refer to as the foreign influence on Confucius. So there was a trade, there was an integrated uh, exchange of culture and uh, economy. They remember that. Um, with all due respect, uh, I think a former Secretary of State of the United States gave a speech in Jakarta in February 2013, where Mrs. Clinton um, fundamentally was interpreted by the Chinese, and it's pretty clear from the text of her speech, uh, talking about the U.S. pivot eastward, uh, made a not-so-veiled threat to shut down sea lanes to the Chinese if that was necessary. Um, the Chinese realized, like most people, that that could be constituted as an act of war under the Geneva Convention. Six months later, Xi Jinping announced the development of the, uh, of the new Silk Road, or the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. in Kazakhstan in November 2013, a direct result. And in five years, they have developed the biggest infrastructure project in the history of the world. Already, 14,000 trainloads of goods have traveled on that belt. Um, and billions of dollars in trade are now in existence. So there was motivation. I think uh, it wasn't um, a motivation that probably the West foresaw with some of our actions. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, it was a feeling we have to do this to ensure our trade is not interfered with. Mm -hmm. And it has been widely received by many, many nations along that whole pathway in Eurasia mm -hmm. and into Africa. And um, the West, if, if the West should be concerned about anything, I think it is the loss of influence in Africa. Uh, China has gone into Africa and they have 
offered economic development without strings attached as long as they can get resources or product. And as a result, they are changing the economic life of many Africans. It's improving. And, uh, and for the West, they need to be concerned that the loyalty of many leaders and governments in Africa are now shifting. And that's mm -hmm. a geopolitical shift. Mm -hmm. And that we need to be thinking about. That actually brings up a question here from YouTube. Um, it asks the questions, or our viewer asks the question, ah, come back, there it is. Is China the next superpower? And what's its standing position uh, at the end time? But let's, let's deal with that second part of the question later. But is China the next superpower? Oh, there's no question. Um, right now they're sitting with one-third of the world's capital currency reserve. That gives them very deep pockets. Um, people will say they have developed a big debt due to their infrastructure building, but they have the capacity to pay that debt. Uh, they have a developing internal market. I mean, countries like the United States or Canada, many of the European countries, have already saturated their market potential. Uh, whereas China has an internal market of another 400 million people. Mm. Uh, and that, is, uh, that will drive their, their depth of ability. Economically, they are a superpower. And uh, they have the biggest manufacturing base in the world right now. They have uh, an infrastructure that is modern. It's brand new. And that is an advantage to them. We in the West have allowed our infrastructures to deteriorate mm. because we've been so interested perhaps in providing social programs not that they're not valuable but you know you have to develop your wealth capacity first before you deliver social programs otherwise you go bankrupt and China has developed those infrastructure projects which gives them a competitive advantage mm. and uh, so yes I think they are already an economic superpower whether they'll be a military superpower I would say that largely depends on the behavior of Western nations. If they feel threatened, they will continue to expend. They do not necessarily want to do that, but they will do it if they feel they need to. Here's another interesting question that was sent in. It says, I wonder how Brexit and China will work out. Surely the goods from China will have to pass through EU countries. Uh, will they even reach Britain? That's a very good question, um, and I, I'd like to preface that the answer with the British and the Chinese have a very good relationship. The way the British negotiated the change of uh, ownership of Hong Kong when they ended the lease in 1997, Britain showed a great deal of respect in those negotiations to China, and China remembers that. And Britain has a special relationship with China as a result. There has been a huge amount of trade already negotiated between Great Britain and China. And I think this is one of the things in the minds of the Brexiteers that mm -hmm. even without Europe, Britain may have very large and sustained market potential in mm -hmm. China. Already, for example, the British Health Authority has contracts to modernize Chinese hospitals. Now that's a big, big contract. That's in the mm -hmm. billions. Mm -hmm. So um, Britain, I think, is in a position, whether they're in Europe or whether they're not in Europe, 
to benefit quite substantially from this because of the respectful relationship that was developed with China. Mm. And that is part of my experience in, 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 and uh, just on the levels that I, I've worked on. If in their cultural, if, you, if their culture is respected and you approach the Chinese in a respectful way, um, I have never seen anyone do that and not have a beneficial agreement. Mm. Um, part of their hard work, they're naturally hard workers, part of their hard work is to try to show that we should be respected. Mm. And by doing that, I think there is a lot of potential gain. And countries that are going to go into negotiations with China with a respectful attitude are going to be successful. Your comments are interesting. I was reading an article today, actually, that was coming out of um, Europe, where the EU nations now are starting to get particularly edgy if Britain goes out of uh, the EU, because they realize they may, they're, they're realizing, I think, more profoundly that if Britain leaves because of some of these connections, the EU may wind up a lot worse off than Britain. <clears throat> Uh, absolutely. I, I don't think people realize the size or the makeup of the British economy. Uh, Germany, for example, is Britain's best trading partner, both ways. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Germans are so desperate that Britain do not leave the EU. Um, however, uh, the factor is that much of the product that Britain makes, those products are marketable internationally. Now, there are problems with Brexit from the economic side from Britain's point of view right. too. You can't right. ignore those. But um, yeah, the, the Europeans, um, I, I would say, are in a situation where they need Britain as much as Britain needs them. Hmm. Another question here, and let's move on to the Bible a little bit. Uh, China obviously is not mentioned specifically by name in the scriptures. But what kind of an indication does the Bible give us of China's role at the end of the age? And perhaps even uh, what kind of role might China have vis-a-vis -vis the West and the Israelite-descended nations, these nations like the United States and Canada and Britain and some of the Western European nations? Well, it's interesting because prophecy does t indicate pretty strongly that because of the rejection of God's way of life, those nations are going to lose out. Those nations are going into a captivity similar to that which their ancestors went into in uh, 721 B.C. for Israel and 586 B.C. for Judah. Um, that is a prophesied event should they not uh, have a change of heart and repent of their ways. Mm -hmm. um, the nation or nations to whom they will fall is prophesied to be a, a great power that uh, the Bible strongly implies will be raised in Central Europe. Um, that Central European power or European power uh, will have the added advantage of also being supported by Satan himself. The Bible is very clear with that, mm -hmm. and uh, which gives them uh, a pretty substantial uh, capacity. Economically, however, in Revelation, we also see that that European power will be a major trading institution. Mm -hmm. um, infrastructure, I'm not saying this infrastructure is what's prophesied, but infrastructure like the Belt and Road, 
does provide high-speed, efficient uh, trading capacity, not just to China, but to the entire Eurasian area, and includes Africa, because it's both a maritime route mm -hmm. and a land route. And it goes both ways. It, it, it definitely yes. comes from China, but it can go back the other it's direction. It's true trade. It's not just one way. <clears throat> and uh, countries that are participant in that will be enriched. Yeah, I think back to Roosevelt and Churchill. In 1941, they, developed, they signed an agreement called the Atlantic Charter in, uh, in a bay off Newfoundland on a British battleship. The two of them met. Based on that agreement, we had the function of the world order that has been around since the end of the Second World War mm -hmm. with the collective security issues, the World Bank, the uh, various institutions for trying to create freer trade and, and that to enhance the wealth of nations. That order is now sort of coming apart. There will be a new world order that will develop, as the Bible clearly indicates. Mm -hmm. That world order will be built on trade because that's how wealth is developed and the strengths of various regions, if it's fair trade and free trade, will develop. Mm -hmm. um, it does seem to me that the uh, Bible is strong in its, uh, in its prediction on that, it's, it's accurate in that, and that will happen. China itself uh, is only mentioned, uh, I suppose, somewhat vicariously, but pretty clearly. There is talk uh, at one point of an army of 200 million people coming from the east. It's very difficult to see how an army of that size or magnitude uh, can be developed without Chinese participation. Uh, later on, at another juncture in prophecy at the very end, uh, there is another great army that comes along the river Euphrates. Uh, uh, three spirits go out and, it says, convince the whole world to take part in this. Mm -hmm. And uh, that army as well uh, will undoubtedly include uh, Asian uh, participation from all over. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clear that China and all those other countries will have to reorient their thinking uh, when a resurrected uh, family uh, led by Jesus Christ comes to this earth to, to implement a proper government on the earth. But um, beyond that, it's, it's difficult to get too specific, I guess, on, mm -hmm. on China's exact participation. The Bible does talk about, and you referenced that eventually the Western nations, uh, the Israelite-descended nations, um, the, the Anglo nations and some Western uh, European nations will be taken into captivity. Uh, the Bible also tells us that these nations who were at one time leaders in the world will be brought down as well. Uh, we, we think that's probably monetarily, in other ways, as well as even in reputation. Is China one of the tools that God could use to even lower the reputations and the capacities of some of these nations? Currently, it's not China's intent to do that. Uh, China wants a rich United States today. That's one of their goals. They would like the United States to be completely wealthy and able to buy their stuff, right? Uh, the last thing they want is a collapse of the American economy. Mm -hmm. That does not serve them at all. Especially when they own a significant portion of the yes, economy. they lose a huge amount of their investment. Um, could they bring down a reputation? They do feel they have been 
dishonestly treated. Uh, I had uh, dinner one evening with my, one of my colleagues in Shanghai with the vice president of the Shanghai Textile Corporation, who was uh, a large investment firm, actually, who had been uh, convinced by the Chinese Minister of Finance to lend and, you know, money into U.S. Treasury bills in the early part of 2008. Part of the negotiations uh, involved a promise that there would be no major increase in money supply that could create an inflationary issue with that investment. Mm. Um, they felt they could take that at our word. However, we all know what happened with quantitative easing mm -hmm. in the latter part of 2008 when one trillion US dollars was suddenly created and added to that money supply and many of these investors lost a lot of money as a result. Mm -hmm. That presented us in a bad way. It presented the West in, a, in the United States in this case as a nation that may not be, you may not be able to trust their word. Um, those are the kinds of impressions. Now we know there are many, many people in the United States who are upset at that. And America has had a, a long history of generosity and uh, uh, support and help for many peoples in the world. But you know, it only takes one or two events to start changing that. And uh, to answer to your question, these kinds of things might be a motivator for some people to, or some nations, to say, well, we couldn't trust them, neither can you. Mm -hmm. So yes, it could attack our reputation that way. Okay. We need to wind this down, and as we do, I'd like to ask you if there's something you'd, a key point or takeaway you'd like to leave the audience with today in regard to China, per, perhaps China's prophetic future, or just things to keep in mind as we watch geopolitics evolve in, in China as a uh, growing global power. I think we need to be very cautious about what we hear in the media and people have to look beyond the immediate media that might be uh, present with you. You need to look a little broader than that into perhaps news sources that are beyond our own shores and get a balanced perspective. Um, and that, I think, would help all levels of our societies here in the West make sure that we are having a, a fair and honest perspective and that we don't get... Um, distracted by a lot of rhetoric, which can uh, put our own country or countries in a um, disadvantaged situation when we're going to negotiate with other, other peoples. In the long term, we do know what the prophecies hold, and uh, unfortunately there's some difficult times for China, there's some difficult times for our own peoples in the future, uh, but there is hope beyond that. Okay. Mr. Havage, thank you so much for, for being here today. It's great to have you here in person. Oh, and actually be able great to, to be here. To look right into your <laughs> eyes and, and not have the time delay with Skype. But thank you, too, for what you brought to the table today, literally, and the, the perspectives that you've shared. It's been well, valuable. Thank you very much. The Chinese are an ancient and an industrious people. They're ambitious, they're driven, as we've been hearing about, and as we've been seeing on the global scene. China has a history of engaging with nations of the world and then turning inward, as we've talked about. 
and it's now re-engaging with the world and working to make up for lost time. The ambitious Chinese people and leadership are no longer happy being overlooked, it appears, and they want to be included with the rest. They are now intent on taking their rightful place in world leadership, uh, or perhaps as the new leader of the world. Uh, maybe not their intent, but it certainly seems that they are growing in that avenue as some of the powers in the West decline. Bible prophecy tells of nations and international regions that will lead the world at the end of the age, just prior to Christ's return. China appears to have a place in this hierarchy. For greater insights into China's future, especially as it relates to Bible prophecy, be sure to listen to Is This China's Century? or read it. It's an article that we've published. You can find it online at tomorrowsworld.org. This insightful article will give you an even greater appreciation for China's prophesied future. Again, the article is, Is This China's Century? To gain more insight into global events and social trends as viewed through the lens of the Bible, we encourage you to be sure to join us each week here on TW Now. Next week, we plan to review 21st century ethics as we discuss the death of honesty. We invite you to be sure to subscribe, like, or share today's program. And again, we look forward to seeing you again, hopefully next week here on TW Now.